It was about two and a half weeks ago that uh, Mike and Lisa Van Drennen encountered something they had not prepared for. And it was a, a, a journey that began on a Tuesday evening. And we're so grateful that that journey has led them here back home with their church family. Uh, Mike uh, suffered a massive heart attack on a Tuesday night, uh, really a Wednesday morning, uh, two and a half weeks ago. And Mike, we're so glad to see you here today. Let's give the Lord a hand. This congregation prayed for you, as you know, and continues to pray for you in your recovery. Lisa and all of the family know of our love for you. This is the fruit of the spirit. We're starting a new series today entitled the fruit of the spirit. A lot of people wonder, is it the fruits of the spirit? Or the fruit of the Spirit. It is the fruit of the Spirit, singular. But there's a whole lot of evidences that come with that. And we'll look at some of those specific fruit next week. Today is kind of a background to all of this. Looking in Galatians chapter 5. If you have a Bible, please turn to Galatians 5. And I'll start reading in a moment at verse 13. Uh, Part 1 is keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. My sources include Bob Deffenbaugh's studies in Galatians, the gospel in God's grace, John MacArthur Jr.'s commentary on Galatians, and a commentary from the New American Commentary by Timothy George on also Galatians. Galatians 5, verse 13. Please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. Hear the word of God. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And self-control against such things. There is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this, your word. And we pray that you would speak to us. Help us, Lord, to see what it means to serve you. To honor you with our lives, to glorify you, how we need your help, O Holy Spirit. We thank you for your presence here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. 
Some of you will remember the movie Schindler's List, which captured Best Picture in 1993. It's the true story of Oskar Schindler, a German who during the Nazi regime used his wealth and his wiles to rescue about 1,200 Polish Jews during World War II. He kept a list of those that he was able to save, hence the name Schindler's List. But if you do your homework, you might be shocked to read, as reported in U.S. News and World Report, that after the war, Oscar Schindler, who had been so brave and so noble, seemed to respond in a way that betrayed his selfless work on behalf of the Nazi targets. You see, when the war was over, Schindler abandoned his wife, became a womanizer and a drunkard, and lived out the rest of his life in destitution and dependence on others. He fell so far that he took the gold ring that was fashioned for him out of the gold harvested from the teeth of the people that he had rescued, and he pawned it for a bottle of snaps. Michael Shermer, publisher of Skeptic magazine and author of The Science of Good and Evil, writes this. I once had the opportunity to ask Thomas Keneally, author of Schindler's List, what he thought was the difference between Oscar Schindler rescuer of Jews and hero of his story, and Amon Goeth, the Nazi commandant of the Plazo concentration camp. His answer was revealing. Not much. Not much, he said. Had there been no war, Mr. Schindler and Mr. Goeth might have been drinking buddies and business partners, morally obtuse, perhaps, but relatively harmless. Shermer goes on to quote the late Russian writer, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. The prophet Jeremiah is so right. The heart is deceitful and beyond cure. Who can understand it? When we think about the book of Galatians, we tend to think of that great Reformation doctrine, justification by faith. We have studied the book of Galatians before. We've studied the doctrine of justification by faith. If you're looking in your outline, then you know that it says justification is an act of God whereby he removes the guilt and the penalty of our sin, while at the same time declaring the sinner righteous through Christ's atoning sacrifice. This righteousness is viewed as being credited to sinners account through faith alone without our works. That is, God pardons our sins and declares us not guilty and accepts us as perfectly righteous in his sight because by his free grace, he credits the perfect obedience of Christ to our account. And that is, in essence, the gospel. How does that happen? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God is a gracious God. And that's how Ella and Katie can sing, I'm a child of God. I'm a part of God's family. Not because I'm a righteous person, but because Jesus was righteous. And I'm trusting in what Jesus Christ did on that cross. 
What we also need to remember about Galatians is that Galatians has a lot to say about our sanctification. Now, it's another theological term, which basically means the ongoing work of Christ in our hearts, whereby we grow in God's grace and become more like Jesus Christ. A typical response to the gospel, and Paul actually addresses this in his letters, is if we are justified by faith alone, then who needs to be obedient? If we're justified by faith alone, then why do we have to please God? Why do we have to live in a way that glorifies God? Well, Paul explains to the Galatians that Christians, whether they're Jew or Gentile, have been freed from the bondage of the law. Not so they can return to its slavery, but so that they can use their freedom to serve Christ and so that they can use their body as an instrument of righteousness and godliness, not for wickedness. So let's have a little Bible study for the next few minutes and look at the Old Testament and how it works with the Holy Spirit. A lot of times we think, well, the Holy Spirit came in the New Testament, so there was no Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Not true. Not true. The Old Testament was very present in the Old Testament. We see a lot of times him as a shadow and and not as someone that we can understand. So there are three persons of the Trinity. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So let's see what we can understand a little bit today. Haggai, one of the minor prophets, but still very important. Haggai chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says this. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Did you notice what he said? He's talking about the Exodus when they came out of Egypt in the Exodus. And he says, my spirit remains among you, meaning the spirit of God was with them. So God is reminding the Israelites that when they had returned to the promised land, from Babylonian exile, that just as his Holy Spirit was with Israel during the Exodus. By the way, how was God with them in the Exodus? The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Even so, once again, God would be in the midst of his people. The prophet is making the point that God placed his Holy Spirit in Israel's midst. Throughout the time of their freedom from bondage and slavery in Egypt. Now, let's look at another passage in the Old Testament. Turn with me to Nehemiah. And those of you Bible drillers, you should be able to find Nehemiah about in the middle of the the Bible. A little bit before you get to Job and Psalms and Proverbs and all that. But Nehemiah chapter 9, and I want to read verse 19. Nehemiah 9, 19, because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness, God. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way that they were to take. So basically, he's saying the Holy Spirit led the people through the wilderness by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And the psalmist possibly with the exodus in the back of his mind, calls upon the Lord in Psalm 143, Psalm 143, verse 10, and says this, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit 
That's capital S. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. So all of these different passages paint a picture of God placing his Holy Spirit in the midst of his people during the Exodus. And so remember, it was not Moses. Moses gets a lot of credit. It was not Moses. It was the Spirit of God represented by the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night who led Israel out of the bondage of Egypt and into freedom. Now, obviously, there was a leader and his name was Moses. Moses led as the Spirit of God led him. Which brings me back to Galatians where Paul writes, walk by the Spirit. So God's people must follow the Holy Spirit on their pilgrimage to the promised land. No, we're not traveling to a piece of real estate in the Middle East, but to the New Jerusalem, to the heavens itself. So remember, God gave Moses the law on tablets of stone, but now under the final exodus, we could call it led by Christ, God writes his law where? Upon our hearts. He writes his law upon our hearts. So let's look in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. And the prophet Ezekiel says, with God speaking through him, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, capital S, in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So we are just as prone to the sins that Old Testament Israel was. But at the same time, we have an even greater resource at hand. Namely, believers in Jesus Christ have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We don't have the law written on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of our heart. And 1 John 5, 3 is a verse that, that I've grown to love through the years. 1 John 5, 3 says... This is love for God. This is love for God to obey his commands and his commands are not burdensome. Now think about that for a moment, because I'm going to tell you something. The law is burdensome. The law is burdensome. The law only condemns sin. Obedience carried out in the power of the flesh will fail every time. You know, these these lists, the list of the fruit of the spirit that I read to you, we can't do those on our own. They're the product of God working in us and through us, through his Holy Spirit who lives inside of us who believe. So are you a believer in Jesus today? Then the Bible says the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and his power can enable you to please God, to fulfill that law that's written on our hearts. So this morning, I want us to look in the remainder of our time at four terms, four terms. And I want us to see how each one fits into the context of our passage in question in Galatians 5. They all begin with L. And here's the first one. License. License. Look with me again at verse 13. Paul writes, you, my brothers and sisters, will call to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. But rather serve one another in love. So Paul underscores the fact that freedom, which the gospel gives to us, is not a freedom to sin, but a freedom from sin. This passage proclaims the believer's freedom 
in Christ to be righteous, not to do whatever we want. You know, when people believe that thanks to what Jesus Christ has done, I can do whatever I want and it's okay. There's a theological term for that. And it's a big one. Antinomianism. You want to spell it out? A-N-T-I, antinomianism. N-O-M-I-A-N-I-S-M. Antinomianism, which basically takes a biblical teaching to an unbiblical conclusion. And that unbiblical conclusion is that there is no moral law that God expects Christians to obey. Yet in verse 19 of Galatians 5, Paul lists a whole bunch of things. He says the acts of the flesh or the sinful nature are obvious. And I read to you all those. It's a long list, an assortment of sinful acts. In his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul dealt with this issue of antinomianism because there was a movement among the people of God in the early church where they thought they could do whatever they wanted. And so that's why Paul in chapter six of Romans, Romans chapter six, verse one, he writes, what shall we say then? Shall we keep on sinning so that grace may increase? And he says, by no means, which means, of course not. And the most typical attack on salvation by grace alone is this thing that some say it encourages believers to sin. People might even wonder if I am saved by God's grace, which is really God's kindness, my un, God's undeserved kindness. If I'm saved by grace and all my sins have been forgiven, so why not just do whatever I want? Because God's going to forgive me and he already has. If you have been truly converted and you've been given that new heart that the prophet Ezekiel talked about, you would never ask a question like that. True conversion leads to a greater desire to obey God, not to a lesser desire. But what sets the believer apart from the unbeliever is this. The believer, inside the believer, there is a spiritual war going on inside of him. Because he not only has a sinful nature, but he also has a new nature, a nature that longs to do what God wants him to do. And so the first thing that we talk about is license. Now, let me give you another L, and it's legalism. Legalism. You know, and this is kind of what I thought growing up Christianity was all about, was a whole bunch of lists of do's and don'ts. How many of you thought that when you were growing up? That, you know, Christianity is all about what you can't do. You know, let's let's just make sure we don't have any fun anymore. OK, because now we're Christians. We got to have a sour look on our face. We can never smile anymore because we're going to be unhappy and we're going to love it. No wonder I didn't like church growing up. But that was the church that I grew up in. That's another story. All right. Listen to verse seven of Galatians five. Verse seven says you are running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? And these false teachers that Paul is talking about, they were convinced that the law was the only real restraint that could keep sin from taking control of their lives. So by setting boundaries on behavior, they felt that at least they could keep sin under control by making penalties for disobedience severe enough to encourage conformity. Even if the conformity was only on the external, 
Only on the outside. But Paul speaks out boldly against this idea because he knows that it's a legal system that is impossible to keep. For example, there are Ten Commandments that we know pretty well. Some of you can name all ten of them. How many of you broken in your life? I would say for most of us, all of them. It's impossible. You look at those Ten Commandments and you think, there's no way in the world. (laughs) There's no way in the world I can keep all those. Especially when Jesus redefined the law in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that? Jesus redefined the law. He said, if you hate somebody in your heart, you already murdered them. So you've already broken the, the Sixth Commandment. So, again, let me just tell you a story. It goes way back in my ministry. I was a pastor for one year. And one of my elders was close friends with a pretty famous evangelist at the time who lived in Texas. Not going to name him, but uh, he said, you know, he's an older guy now, but he's still alive and he's still preaching. I think he'd come preach at our church. I'm like, wow, I I read his book years ago. Seemed like a pretty interesting read. So that elder and another elder took me to this evangelist home. We drove a couple hours from East Texas to where, where he lived and sat down with him. He seemed a little bit harsh, but, you know, I thought maybe he's just crusty in his old age. Um, we uh, invited him to come and preach a series of meetings at our church. And I'll tell you what, that was one of the longest weeks of my life. One of the longest weeks of my life. Because he was so tough and so legalistic. It was a choking kind of message that he gave us. And I'm a year into my pastorate there. And I remember sitting there on the first Sunday when he got up after we had sung a hymn and said what he said. And pastors do think these things, okay? I was sitting there going, what in the heck have I done? Inviting this man to my pulpit. Oh, no. Here's what he said. We sang the hymn that I love, that many of you love, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. How many of you love that hymn? It's a wonderful hymn. And one of the last verses says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Well, this pastor got up and said, right as he started, It still burned in my memory. I like to sing truth when we sing hymns in church. And today we sang a hymn that is not true. I went, okay, I usually am pretty thoughtful about these hymns. What do you say? He said, I'm not prone to wander. Why would I be prone to wander if Jesus is altogether more lovely? Why would I be prone to wander? I don't know about you, but I wonder sometimes. I still have a flesh that I hate and despise. I still think things that I can't believe I think and occasionally do things that I wish I hadn't done. I still sin, and many of you, all of you do, if you're willing to admit that or not. This man was standing in my pulpit saying he didn't sin anymore because Jesus was altogether more lovely than all these other things that you might be tempted to do. And he's right. On the one hand, Jesus is altogether more lovely than anything that we might turn to. That doesn't mean we don't wander in our flesh. And so he taught a perfectionistic kind of gospel all week long to my church. 
And it took us about a year to recover. Paul reminds the Galatians that the freedom of knowing, listen to this, this is so important, the freedom of knowing that you have been accepted by God because of the merits of Christ, not my merits, because of the merits of Christ, rather than our own totally insufficient merits. He reminds these Galatians, this is your only hope, the merits of Christ, because on your own, Paul said, you could never ever reach a point where it would be enough. So get the picture of these two extremes, license and legalism. License on the one side, legalism on the other. And for some reason, and don't miss this, both of these extremes of license and legalism have always been attractive to us as sinners. The antinomian or the one who is engaged in license satisfies himself or herself by living exactly as he or she pleases. On the other hand, the legalist satisfies himself or herself by maintaining a lifestyle that is consistent with a very strict external code of do's and don'ts. John MacArthur says that if you can picture legalism and license as two parallel streams that are so contaminated with pollution, pollutants and poisons that to try to cross is to face certain death, then maybe the solution, he says, is to find a bridge that can take you across both of them. And the bridge is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why he said to these Galatians, how foolish you are to depart from the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is your righteousness, not you. You cannot do it on your own. And that's the greatest, most freeing message in the world. It's that Christ came to die for sinners. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so I stand today as a pastor who's, who's bathed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ on my, my, my behalf, on the merits of Jesus Christ and what he did in his active obedience in this world, which led him to the cross. And that brings me to the third L, which is the, the wonderful message that Paul was sharing. Liberty, liberty. He says in verse 13, you, my brothers, were called to be free. So I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And what the false teachers missed was the fact that because of what Christ had accomplished, we have something so much better than an external law. We now have that internal law, the law of the Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit comes to live inside the believer, giving us an internal motivation to obey the commands of God that are presented in the scriptures. And when we talk about liberty and being free to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are talking about living in such a way that we want to please God. I want to please God because the Holy Spirit lives in me, because I know Jesus. He's my Savior and my Lord. I want to please Him. Do I always? No, I don't. And so on the other hand, while the acts of the sinful nature, as our text says, are obvious in verse 19, it is most important to remember that these two behaviors being led by the Holy Spirit and being led by our selfish desires of our flesh are mutually exclusive so that at all times we're either doing one or the other, but we're never living both ways at the same time. Paul said, walk by the spirit. If you're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. You will not sin in a way that's dishonoring to God. 
But how do you know? How do you know which way you're living? Because you're either living one way or the other. And Paul tells us how with the last L. And it's the word love. Verse 13. Do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather serve one another in love. The entire law, he says, is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Although you and I are not bound by the system of law as the Old Testament saints were, the Bible says when a Christian truly loves others, especially loves fellow believers, he or she has fulfilled all, all of the moral requirements of the Mosaic law. So keep in mind that even under the old covenant of law, God demanded heart service, not just lip service. Remember what Jesus said? You know, these people are far from me. Why did he say that? Because their hearts were far from him. So even in the old covenant, God demanded heart service and a beautiful picture of serving out of a motivation of love rather than duty is in looking at the first ordinance that was given through Moses after the Ten Commandments. This ordinance stipulated that if one Hebrew bought another Hebrew as a servant, the servant had to be freed after serving his master for six years. It's found in Exodus chapter 21. It says this in verses 5 and 6. But if the servant declares, I love my master and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door of the doorpost, to the door or the doorpost, and pierce his ear with an awl. And then he will be his servant for life. Our text says this for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so whoever the son sets free is free indeed. And the purpose of Christian freedom is for believers to do exactly like these Hebrew servants did. Who permanently surrendered their own freedom to the master that they love. And you know, when I became a Christian at the age of almost 17... And the gospel embraced me. Jesus embraced me. Showed me his love. It changed my life. It changed my life. I said, oh, this is what I've been holding out, wondering about. This is what I've been missing out on. Is the love of Christ who loves me in spite of who I am and embraces me and died on the cross for me. And he's not content to leave me as I am. He changes me. He cleanses me of all my sin. And then by his spirit who lives in me, he enables me to please him. And it's love. He loved me. And so I love him. God's love is so incredible. And and next week we're going to talk more about love because it's the first fruit of the spirit. And it's there for a reason. It's not by chance that Paul said love first. Susan Nikaido puts it well when she says love, joy, and all that other good stuff are the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of our efforts. We can't produce them on our own, period. The fruit comes only as we submit our lives and let the Spirit control us. And so for the next number of weeks, we're going to be talking about what that means. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? What does it mean to to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to, to please and honor God through His Spirit within us? We're going to talk about that for a number of weeks, and I hope you'll be here for that. Our verse of the week today is Galatians 5, verse 6. We didn't read this in our text, but we're going to read it now. Very short verse, Galatians 5, 6. It says, the only thing that counts is faith. Expressing itself through love. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, we we try so hard to make this hard. To make the gospel something that is not. Thank you for the good news of the gospel, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the Apostle Paul who tried to clear it up. Because there were false teachers saying it was it was all these other things, all these other requirements they had to do. Making them have heavy burdens. Lord, thank you that you are the one that says, come to me. All of you who are burdened down with religion. And I will give you rest. Lord Jesus, help us today to learn from you. To embrace your love. To know that you have loved us with an everlasting love. And that you demonstrate your own love for us in this. While we were sinners, you died for us. And so we praise you, Lord Jesus, for your active obedience. In that you fulfilled the law. You never sinned one time. And yet when we walk out these doors, we'll probably stumble and and do something that will not fulfill your law. We thank you for the grace and mercy you've shown to us, Lord Jesus, in forgiving us of all of our sins. Thank you that you put within us those who believe, those who have repented of their sins and turned in faith to accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. You put within us your Holy Spirit, a law written on our hearts. Because of that, we want to please you. We don't always do that, but we want to. So give us the grace and the understanding by your spirit of how to do that. How to live in such a way to glorify you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being merciful to me. I pray your mercy upon these, my brothers and sisters, my friends. Bless them, Lord, with your mercy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.